1: Conspiracy Unlimited
2: with Richard Serrett.
1: I think that the great whore of Babylon, you, you mentioned the throne of Satan in, in Pergamum. me, in Asia Minor. But when you kind of go, well, who was Zeus? Well, Zeus is the Greek word for Marduk. He was That was the Babylonian name of Zeus, Marduk. And the cult of Marduk was in the city of Babylon where the great ziggurat existed. And before that, his name was Enlil. And, and there was another Mesopotamian town from where Enlil ruled. And, and all the kings of Mesopotamia went there to receive the blessing from the priests of Enlil before they took the throne. So I think that it she is really this occult competing religion that poured into the nations. It has ta- taken many shapes and many names. But ultimately, there's only two religions, if you the one that comes from the dark side and the biblical faith. I mean I'm sorry to say that, but if I'm to represent this information accurately and correctly, this is where the conclusion takes us. Check out the huge
0: selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop in the menu, or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At my Strange Planet shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters, and stickers and more all emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist-illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop, or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it.
2: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres.
0: Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions is here for the next half hour to discuss the book of Revelation, a.k.a. the Apocalypse of John. So, the Cosmic War. What is the Cosmic War and the three great signs in heaven that's mentioned in Revelation, Ali?
1: The Cosmic War that the Bible describes really begins in the Garden of Eden, where Satan decides to challenge the role of humanity in the cosmic order. The Cosmic Order. Adam is created to bring the instructions of God to the creation to represent God over the angels and to rule them. But Satan does not want to accept that and so he challenges Adam by tricking him to do something that would condemn him to death according to God's own laws. In a way, like he does with the story of Job, he's essentially challenging the worthiness of Job and the worthiness of Adam, the worthiness of man to have this incredible destiny. And as God is not pleased by this, and He begins, God begins a series of judgments over Adam and Eve, but also over Satan, and that plunges us into a cosmic war because Satan and his angels don't just bow out at that point. They dig their heels into the ground. They have authority. They have rulership over the fallen world. They have a place still in the universe. And they seem to be very bent on fighting to prolong and maintain that authority as long as they can. And what's going to end it is the Messiah, not only, you know, the work on the cross, which is absolutely crucial, like it says in, in the letter that John wrote, that it is to undo the works of the devil, but also the second coming uh, where, you know, Jesus goes to heaven and there are two thrones in heaven, the throne of the Father and the throne of the Son. He receives all authority over all kindred tongues and nations. And then he sits at the right hand of God, it says in the Scripture, until God makes a footstool for his enemies. And then, a time not known to anyone but the Father himself, suddenly the Son and his armies are returned to the earth to arrest Satan, arrest these angels, destroy the final empire and the emperor, and bring in the Messianic Kingdom, an era of peace and prosperity and health and life like we have never known it in all of history. It's the Sabbath of history, and that's where the Book of Revelation ultimately takes us.
0: And there are three signs, three great signs in heaven. What do they signify?
1: They signify different things. What exactly they mean? I mean, you're you're asking me very precise questions. And the sun, the moon, and the stars. They appear in the context of a woman. Is that the one that, you know, You're. is that the sign you're referring to? They appear around a woman? Is that the context? There is
0: a, a section in Revelation called the three great signs in heaven, right? That before, I guess.
1: It, the sixth seal, yes. Oh, that's the sixth a great, seal, ah. Yeah, there okay. was a great earthquake and the sun became black, a sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. So going back to the book of Genesis, we are told that God will use the sun and, and the moon as signaling systems. We're told that in the fourth day of creation where the sun, the moon, the stars and the earth are put in some sort of an electromagnetic you know, rotation orbital relationship not only is it for marking the calendar god explains that but also as a signaling system so when there's for instance you know an eclipse of the sun and the moon becomes red, like blood, and if it falls on one of the appointed days of God's calendar, then it means something. And And we, we do see that, in fact, when that alignment occurs, historical events of great importance happen. Some of the rabbis saw the sun as being something th- that is for the Gentiles. It's a sign that something is going to happen to the Gentile world and the moon to the Jewish world. We see when the Lord is crucified that there was an eclipse of the sun. And so, again, that kind of points to that earthquakes are always a sign of judgment that God's judgment over something dark and evil is arriving, Uh, like even at the second coming on the Mount of Olives when when the Lord lands, it says in the scroll of Zechariah, there's an earthquake and the Mount of Olives splits into two. And there's a fault line that goes from Jerusalem to Kenya. So earthquake is a sign of judgment, sun and moon changing colors and becoming like sackcloth, so that's an eclipse of the sun, or the moon becoming red. These are pointing to the fact that God is signaling A change in the seasons and times, like the kings of the earth are going to be removed and a new king is going to be installed. Stars are a different matter. Stars are an idiom for angels in the Bible. So we see that it's a recurring motif. So the fact that the stars of heaven fall to the earth, yes, it could be talking about actually like asteroids and things like that, but actually. There are passages in the book of Daniel, for instance, that talk about how the Antichrist will speak against the inhabitants of heaven and will even make the stars fall on the ground, which is an idiom for angels. So, this I would see more as the war of angels. Even some people would connect the war of angels to the UFO phenomenon. And so, you could possibly see some UFOs being shot down and brought into the ground. And that could be where the stars uh, symbology takes us into the world of angels.
0: All right, let's talk about some of the magnificent and frightening beasts, the red dragon.
1: The red dragon is deciphered for us in in that passage where we are told it's Satan, the ancient serpent. So, the book of Revelation deciphers that one for us.
0: And there's also a beast that comes out of the sea. Is the location significant where this beast emerges?
1: Yes, Everything is important. So, what does the sea represent and then there's the beast that comes from the earth. What does the earth represent? These become endless questions where that people start to interpret and study and one person will say it means, oh, thalassa, that's the Greek word for sea and that means peoples and nations. So, it comes out of democracies. Because the sea usually represents peoples in the symbology of the Bible. So, he he emerges out of the democracies. That's fine. Another way of looking at it, which is what I would bring to the table, is that the sea was under the rule of, you know, let's say Neptune, for instance. You know, there was a a fallen angel that had authority over the waters. So, nations that did well in the sea, like the English, the British, you know, they were nations that had command of the sea. And then... The Romans, for instance, were really landlubbers, like they hated the sea. They were not naval people. They were very well known for having a weak navy. And they were really an earth power. So when you look at, for instance, Apollo, the sun god, who's symbolized by the sun. Well, in the ancient writings where he was called Shams in Mesopotamia, the sun god, the sun and the earth are always put into symbiosis, the way that the moon and the waters are. So kind of the moon god and the lord of the waters, the sun god and the lord of the earth. So these could actually be realms and boundaries of the power of principalities. So you've got two different principalities from which these characters emerge. That's another way of looking at it.
0: M.G. in the live chat asks, uh, well, M.G. has a question about thrones. How many, I think you mentioned this, how many thrones are there in heaven and what is the source?
1: The source is Daniel chapter seven, I think it's verse 14 around there, where there's a prophecy from the prophet Daniel about the Son of Man ascending to the Ancient of Days. And Jesus often referred to that prophecy when speaking of himself, identifying himself as being that Son of Man that Daniel is pointing to. And then the Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days, which is God. And there we are told, we are given the word thrones in plural. And so we know that the, in heaven there are thrones. Now, we know there's the Father's throne, God. Then the Son receives a throne. So that's two thrones. Then he comes to the earth and assumes the throne of King David. And that's the 1000 year rule of Christ. And yes, it is a literal 1000 year rule. It is a different throne. And this throne of King David is the one he assumes the only legitimate government that heaven recognizes on earth is the throne of King David, and Jesus is going to inherit that. And then there is these elders who have thrones, who have crowns, and they place it at the foot of God. And so we are told when he returns, he's going to give also thrones and crowns to his faithful, that you know those who have believed in him from the different nations will serve him in a place of leadership. But in the Bible, leadership always means servitude. So the whole concept actually in the Bible is summarized with the word Elohim, which is a plural word, which has been, it means God, it means gods, but it really means authority and power. And the idea is that God is the leader of all the systems of authority and power in the world of angels, in the world of man, the kings of the earth are chosen by Him, their time of rule is set by Him, and even in families, you know, if if you look at the kind of the traditional idea of of a man, of a father in a family, that that authority is also given to Him by God, so He must run His family according to God and, and with humility and service to His wife and children. And so, God is the leader of all these thrones, but exactly how many are in heaven, for sure I can say two, the throne of the Father and the throne of the Son. Beyond that, angels, men, well, I don't really have the precise numbers for all of them.
0: Okay, the beast that emerges from the sea, that's the one that has, is it seven heads? And some of those heads have like ten horns?
1: Right. So, the seven heads are um, seven kings and they're also seven empires, right? Um, Like, as I said, one way that people look at it is is when God calls Abraham out and has a, signs a covenant with him or you know establishes a covenant with him, which is basically the basis of the work of God on earth to establish the Abrahamic covenant. Um, Abraham is challenged, you know, his children by Egypt. Um, then they're challenged by Assyria, by Babylon, by Persia, by the Greco-Roman world, uh, so Greece and Rome. And that's that's six empires right there. And so people go, okay, these are the seven heads, six of them are these, and the seventh one, we're about to find out. And so so these heads of the dragon represent... Uh, imperial systems that have risen on the world stage with the specific mission of targeting the work of God and targeting Israel. Uh, for instance, you know, the Greeks uh, this the, the decided to darken the the, the temple and, and confuse the worship and Hellenize the temple and that led to the rededication of the temple, um, which is called Hanukkah. But then the Romans came and they actually destroyed the temple and they destroyed it on the very day. That the Babylonians had destroyed it in the Hebrew calendar, five centuries apart. The Babylonians and the Romans destroyed the temple on the same day, the ninth day of the month of Av. So the idea is that there are these forces that press in, but seven empires specifically are singled out by Scripture, and these are the seven heads of the dragon. Now the ten horns represent leaders like like you know they represent the military might. And the and the sceptre of rule. So out of these seven empires, ten specific leaders, ten specific kings, are singled out to be the object of prophecy and God's judgment.
0: All right, uh, the the ba- the battle of Armageddon. We've got to get to, we've got to get to that before uh, we finish here. Obviously, that is crucial. That is central to the story. Right, the battle of Armageddon.
1: Yes, it's a climax of of the judgments uh, of the Bible. It's a it's a physical location, um, you know, north of Jerusalem, but it's also a uh, a symbol of the spiritual war, the cosmic war, um, and this whole you know empire a system that that satan wants to build you know over the human race and control it and mark people and chip people and all of that it culminates in a great moment of judgment and the same way that the that the sea you know opened up and swallowed up the armies of pharaoh Armageddon is in a way the equivalent judgment um, as as the story of the parting of the sea. Uh, God said that he would not destroy the world by water but by fire. And so, it looks like he's going to come with some firepower and there are many passages that describe this. It's the final great battle where God and his angels from heaven show up with their chariots, it says and these guys that are on the earth these angelic forces and the humans that will be with them there'll be many humans that will take on the side of satan and 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 there'll be humans that are that are waiting more to be delivered by god so they don't take a side in that sense but this is the climax of this series of seals and trumpets these judgments that begin begin over this this kingdom. And you know, the seven seals begin when Jesus receives the authority and power from God, and he is found worthy to now begin the system of judgment that will destroy the evil, destroy the empire, and rescue the human race and redeem it. So it's a climax of all of this is the great Battle of Armageddon. why Why
0: does Satan continue his destruction of man? when he knows God's prophecy. Satan, you know, must know, even Satan can can quote scripture. He must know that he loses at Armageddon, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, so um, I think that that uh, God used strategy with Jesus. God sealed the prophecies of the Old Testament that had to do with the idea that the blood sacrifice of, of the Lord would provide an atonement for the people of the earth. Um, he He hid that from Satan. So Satan thought, "Um, by killing you know the Messiah, the king, I'm going to continue to have an empire forever, because the guy who is going to inherit this is done." Um, And when he destroyed the Lord, um, uh, the Lord came back to life. And then, you know, Satan realized, ah, all of these passages came to life not only for the Jewish people, but also for the angels. And they understood the mystery of atonement that was, you know, hidden in plain sight by the power of God. And so, at that point, I think you're right. He thought, I'm done. Now I see everything is lost. So, what scripture says, first of all, is that he's going to do his worst because he knows his time is short. It says that in the book of Revelation. So, so there's a bit of a vindictiveness, it Ah, seems here. I see, yeah. A, a kind of a rebellion against the judgment of God. And there's this idea of prolonging the empire. For instance, if the Jews are coming back. To the land, and that's the fulfillment of prophecy. Well, let's have a Holocaust. Let's stop that process. If they've come back to the land, let's try to gather all the nations of the earth against them, um, because we don't want this picture where the Jewish people, the Messiah, and the land, once they're connected together, the peace on earth arrives. That's what the prophets tell us. So Satan's trying to prolong his empire by sabotaging the conditions that fulfill the prophecies of God.
0: What can I say about ESS-60 I haven't already said? It's a miracle in a bottle. ESS-60 is pure carbon-60. And carbon-60 is a miracle molecule that earned its discoverers a Nobel Prize in chemistry. I've been taking a tablespoon of ESS-60 for my friends at C60 Evo every morning. What a difference it's made in my life. It delivers better health, mental clarity, and immune support. I'm pain-free, energized, and I'm sleeping better than I have in decades. ESS60 from C60 Evo is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. It's a known antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory remedy that really works. And now you can experience C60 Evo's new Advanced Facial Serum the groundbreaking new anti-aging formula that incorporates ESS-60, plus 21 organic, natural, and vegan ingredients. This luxuriant formulation is specifically blended to soften and heal your skin. Put it on at night, enjoy the subtle rosemary essence, and awaken to noticeably softer skin. To get your ESS-60 and C60's new Advanced Facial Serum, go to episode notes for this podcast and click on the C60 Evo link. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your health care provider.
2: Fasten your seatbelts. Place your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave behind everything you think you know. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard
1: Serrett. What or who is the great whore? um so I, I think that the great whore of babylon you see when you when you you, you mention the throne of satan in in pergamum excuse me, in asia minor but when you kind of go well who was zeus well zeus is the greek word for marduk he was that was the babylonian name of zeus marduk and the cult of Marduk was in the city of Babylon where the great ziggurat existed and before that his name was Enlil and, and there was another Mesopotamian town from where Enlil ruled and, and all the kings of Mesopotamia went there to receive the blessing from the priests of Enlil before they took the throne. So I think that it she is really this occult competing religion that poured into the nations. It has ta- taken many shapes and many names. But ultimately, there's only two religions, if you will. The one that comes from the dark side and the biblical faith. I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but if I'm um, to represent this information accurately and correctly, this is where the conclusion takes us to. You know, humans of all kinds. There's good, bad, and ugly among all of us. It's not about you know nations and people. It's about just this belief systems coming from these mysterious beings that we're all supposed to worship the gods. Well, who? who, who for a moment, we you know we should just take it. Take some time out to figure out who's who and what's what, uh, and. Question anything and everybody. So, from I think the mystery of Babylon represents this alternative system of thought, of belief, of religion that points the world to this, to these spiritual forces with Satan at the helm, and competes with the revelation and word of God that has come through the prophets of Israel, through His Son, and through the Holy Spirit. So, the horror of Babylon,
0: the judgment on Babylon. So, the judgment will be, and Babylon, I guess, will be the final empire, the Antichrist system. Is that correct?
1: It's the religion of it. Ah. it's the spiritual part of it, yeah,
0: okay. Let's see. Saint. Michael asks, what is the significance of the three secrets of Fatima, and why is the third secret hidden?
1: Well, I think that's you know, a revelation from the Queen of Heaven, so, in my angelology, the Queen of Heaven is not really the mother of Jesus, but she's an ancient angel who's mentioned also in the book of Jeremiah as something that the Jewish people are worshipping and they should not be. And before, you know, the book of Jeremiah, she has a long career in Mesopotamia. Inanna is her original title and she likes that title, Queen of Heaven. So. I don't know if I can really comment on it. It's not a question that's from the Bible. I think that's from, you know, a Catholic specialist. And I'm not even sure it's a revelation we can even trust,
0: you know? All right. So, part three of Revelation. Heaven is once again opened and the thousand years of, you know, Christ's kingdom on earth. Tell me about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, God defeats the force of evil. It's kind of like, imagine, the Nazis have taken over the world. And then God comes and defeats the Nazis and frees the Earth. The cavalry arrives. It's got a happy ending. We are kind of at the end of a bitter time of history. You know, the second coming in the Bible is actually called the Day of the Lord, which assumes we are living in the night of history right now. And so the day is about to dawn on us. And and in some ways, it has begun at the resurrection. And then he goes to God and he sends the Holy Spirit and all the nations come to know him and these spiritual forces weaken. But then there's a final empire which occurs during a time where the Jews are once again a nation in the land of Israel, which is what we've seen in in the 20th century. And this final empire is then defeated by the second coming of Christ and the establishing of a 1000 year rule. Where every passage in the Bible that describes this 1,000 year, it's very idyllic. Even things that are natural predators are living in harmony together and there is justice and peace on the earth and the laws and rules of God's kingdom are what the government functions around. So, things that are revealed perhaps in the books of Moses, you know, be form the basis of the rule of government. Everyone who has believed in Jesus for the past 2,000 years is brought back to life or if they're already alive, great. They're given a new body which is a body like the one he had when he came back from the dead. And not only is it a a body that's able to be sustained eternally, but also it is one that naturally functions in cooperation with the kingdoms, with God's ways. It's not like the body we have today that even though in our hearts we want to walk one way, we tend to kind of walk in a different way. We don't have that conflict, so it's a new body. And the people who receive this new body are given authority. and. The books of the of prophecy of the Bible tell us that the people that survived the apocalypse, you know, enter into this kingdom, but they're not regenerated because they never came to faith in the life that they had here. And so they continue to live long lives, but they continue to live and die, and they can also sin. And there's several passages in the Bible that points to this, and that's what we see after this great Sabbath of history, which lasts a thousand years. And by the way, Even before the flood, no one lives a thousand years. So a thousand years is symbolic of something significant, of something that's restored. And it seems to actually be long enough to be a day in the cosmic calendar, you know, not just the human calendar, but in the calendar of God and angels, it seems a thousand years qualifies as a day. So there is something significant. There's a time of peace and rulership, but Satan is released after a thousand years And he does tap into this sinful nature, it seems, of of the humans that continue to live but have not been regenerated. And he mounts a final rebellion to take back the kingdom from Jesus. It's like a final test for humanity, like the way that you would test gold in the fire. And here, God himself arrives, the Father, and he arrives in this thing which is our final destination called the heavenly Jerusalem. And I don't know if it's a cube, because when you kind of, that reminds me of the Borg ship, when you kind of look at the, the um, measurements of this heavenly temple, the temple at the at, at the center of time and space where God himself dwells and seems to be a, a moving object, we then ascend into that temple. Everyone who's ever lived is brought back to life and, and judged. In front of the throne of God, those whose names are not written in the book of life are, you know, apparently destroyed. And everybody else joins this. the people who were already rejuvenated and resurrected at the first coming, at the second coming, and joins them and enters into the heavenly Jerusalem where we meet God face to face, which is a sign of great intimacy. We're given names, which are functions that we're going to have in this universe. And we then resume our original uh, purpose for which Adam was created to bring the instructions of God into the universe, into creation, to govern over the angels and to serve um, uh, under God and the Messiah. Uh, The earth is the incubation chamber of the immortal children of God.
0: And so what happens to the planet? Does it continue or…
1: No. It says that there's going to be it says in, in in the in the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation at this point takes on that theme that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So what, you know, it, it does say there's going to be new earth as well. So there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and and the corruption um you know is 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 done away with. And the people who receive Jesus today, in a way, they are the beginnings of this new creation that finally finds its culmination a thousand years after the coming of Christ. That's when it really blossoms and we get the new heaven and new earth and we enter into this temple uh, at the heart of time and space and sit in the presence of God himself. So… Two things. Number one, how do we how are
0: we certain that what John was writing about was not our future, but what was happening? Because, again, uh, you know, the world, the ancient world was in the midst of war at this time. Um, the, uh, the, The Christians were being exiled. Uh, Yet the Roman emperors—it was the, I guess, the Flavian Flavian dynasty, and so forth. How do we know that when he was talking about Antichrist and Babylon, he wasn't referring to his own time, Rome?
1: Well, well, you know, he was because when you look at uh, kind of a pattern of uh, among the Hebrew prophets, because John was a Hebrew prophet, is that in the Greek thinking we think more in a linear way, like every prophecy has a specific fulfillment. And then we argue, go, no, this prophecy was fulfilled here, no, this prophecy was fulfilled there. But the Hebrew prophetic scriptures are actually written in a system of spiral pattern, like kind of like the horns of of a ram or something where it spirals, um, where it, it actually, you know, addresses needs um, of the lifetime of the prophet, that's where it begins. Like if God tells Ezekiel you're going to go back to this land, is because Ezekiel lives in exile. Sure, this prophecy applies to today's uh, return to the land as well. But when it was spoken to Ezekiel, it actually addressed his immediate concerns. So these prophecies address the immediate concerns of John and, and the early church and this great persecution Rome and all that stuff. They begin there, but then they spiral in a system of pattern into what has now taken 2000 years since Jesus hasn't really returned yet and his kingdom on earth hasn't been established and then they have a final climactic fulfillment that then closes the matter that is the pattern of how hebrew prophecy works throughout the bible like when god says to israel out of egypt i called my son there's nothing in that passage that would tell you that's anything other than israel but then matthew says no this was also about jesus so it was a pattern it had a double meaning and so this is kind of how you know it all works uh, in, in so yes it had addresses that uh, at the time of, of John, but it also addresses uh, the, the acharit Hayamim, the end times, uh, the climax of the age, the end of one season of history and the birth of the next season of history. It really focuses a lot of its firepower there in this spiral form of, of how Hebrew prophecy works. As far as Rome is concerned, we I, don't be so sure that we are not still living under Rome. Um, we you know you look at like the you know the American system of, of the Senate uh, the president um, and the 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 architecture uh, of the Capitol Hill and of many of the structures in Washington they are on purpose designed to look Roman um, when we see you know, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, um, you know, he said the once I heard him once say that, you know, God does to Israel, um, you know, whatever you do to Israel, God does to you. If you bless Israel, God will bless you. If you curse Israel, God will curse you. And he said, in Rome, destroyed Jerusalem. We're still in Rome. That's the summary. Okay, of it. Ali Siadatan.